There's something that for mo some of you might be the greatest thing that happens when you're at home. For some others, could be the worst thing that happens when you're at home. And that is the moment when the doorbell rings and there's people. We call them guests or company. It is, it, it is for, some of, for some of you, for some of us, it is great to have people at the door and open the door. And, and, and some of us with a more a greater desire to be hospitable. We open the door and we invite people in and we're so glad you are here. But for some of us, that means that when people are coming to our house, we have to clean, we have to organize, we have to prepare. Especially when the guests are unexpected. The story that I want to share with you today is about a, an unexpected event at an unexpected situation. So let's open our Bibles and let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Because see, when we receive guests, expected or unexpected, we still have to do what needs to be done. Verse 1, John chapter 1. It's in your notes. You can open your Bibles. And it says, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, Cana, it was a town really close to, to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. Uh, let's think about uh, Nazareth as West Covina and Covina was Cana. So it was very logical that people who lived in those two communities knew each other. There were relationships. We don't know the nature of the relationship between the mother of Jesus and the people at the wedding. We don't know if they were just acquaintances. Some people have come to the idea that they were relatives. That is why Mary was uh, at a high or special position at the wedding that they come for her to her to her uh, for help. But what happens either way is that Mary was at this wedding. Now, when we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, we have to understand what was going on in Jesus' life this moment. Jesus had just turned 30 years old. And, and there's a lot of questions about why Jesus has decided to start his ministry uh, at 30 years of age. You see, this is, in essence, the first week of ministry of Jesus when these events occur. Jesus has already been baptized and he spent 40 days in the desert. You remember when the devil tried to tempt him. And so Jesus now comes back to Nazareth, to Galilee, to, to the area where he grew up. And as he's walking by the lake, most likely on a Sunday morning, he finds these people fishing. That by the afternoon, they're not fishermen anymore. They are his disciples. Now, weddings in those, in those days occurred during the middle of the week. See, it was, it was the Jewish tradition that the wedding of a, of a virgin woman was to be celebrated on a Wednesday. So most likely this is the day when Jesus is at this place. Now, Jesus began his ministry when he was 30 for a couple of reasons. Joseph is not in the picture anymore. It is believed that Joseph, the, the husband of his mother, 
he passed away at a young age. So Jesus, being the oldest son, the oldest child, had to take care of his younger siblings. So Jesus didn't leave the house until his younger siblings are already of age to work in the shop and care for themselves. So now Jesus is the man of the house. So Jesus begins his ministry at 30, and as he goes, the first event that he attends publicly with his new uh, acquired disciples is this wedding. See, weddings were the most special social event in the community in those days. They were awaited, they were expected to be celebrations that very different from what weddings are today, the last a few hours, including the, the, the ceremony. In those days, weddings lasted up to a week. The longer the celebration, it was thought that the longer the joy that the couple will have in the future. So the longer the party, the longer the happiness. Now in this story, it's not about the wedding celebration. It is not principles of, of marriage that we'll learn. In fact, it's not even about wine or party punch. It's about the lesson that Jesus transferred to his new disciples on that event. You see, Jesus wanted to show his disciples that when he was needed, he was going to be available. And that gives us a lesson, family, because as we learn to serve others, we have to understand that service is in reality, service is in reality, doing what is needed when it's needed. See, this is what happens in verse 2. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, it is quite interesting to, under, to, to, to read this because, see, the disciples were not relatives. They were not part of the picture. It happened that Jesus was invited to the wedding because he was the son of Mary, but he took his plus one. In reality, he took his plus five because there were five disciples with him at that moment. So he goes to the wedding, and verse 3 says that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, let, let's understand why there is so much importance on this wine running out. You see, it was the Jewish tradition that the groom was in charge of providing for the ceremony. The ceremony would take place at the, at the home of the groom. But not just that. After the ceremony and the celebration was over, by Levitical law, the, Jew, the, 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 the groom was to be with his new bride without having to go to work or any other responsibility for a whole year. I wish that was true when I got married. <laughs> but see, what happens is this. There's a principle behind this. It wasn't just that they were going to be there loafing from other people. What happens was that this groom had already made preparations to provide for whatever was needed for the celebration and to provide for him and his bride for a whole year ahead of time. 
Today, would, that would translate that if you want to get married, you need to have a job and some savings. I guess I'm preaching now. So if something, some of the elements of, 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 of the wedding, like the wine, would be to run out, that was a sign that this groom didn't have enough responsibility or wealth to provide for the bride. So it's a, it was a bad thing. It was not just an embarrassing situation. It was a dishonoring event. And also, it was followed by terrible humiliation. Now, the wine. Let's talk a, l a little bit about the wine. Because I know, I see it in your faces. You want to know what kind of wine that was. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that wine in the Bible is, is equal to joy. Okay, don't believe me. Let's see what the Bible, Psalm 1-4 says. And wine to gladden the heart of what? Of who? Of a man and women. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, psalmist, the psalmist is talking about the th three things that are essential for joy, for happiness. And he's saying that wine is one. Now, I know, I know you're saying, where's the pastor going? He's weird. No, I'm not. Let me explain. In the Bible, in the Bible, there's no two words for juice and wine. There's only one. And that's the word oinos. Can you say it, oinos? Okay. Now, let me share another verse with you because I know you're still thinking this guy is crazy. Proverbs 23 says, this is Solomon, the wisest man that lived on earth besides Jesus. He says, do not look at wine when it is red. This is not a justification for white wine. <laughs> this, is, this is saying that Grape juice, oinos, when it's juice, and it's not fermented, it's of one color, but when it turns red, it's already fermented. Are you with me? So he says, don't look at it. See, not even, he said, don't, don't taste it. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say don't touch it. He says, don't even look at it. Because he says, when it sparkles in the cup, goes down smoothly, but in the end, verse 32 says, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Are you with me now? Are we on the same page? This wine that was served at the wedding, this oinos that was served at the wedding, wasn't necessarily fermented wine. I read several commentaries this week that said that it was. But there's no biblical justification to say that the Bible is consistent saying that in those days it was not fermented juice. Now, the other part is the Jewish tradition. And the Jewish tradition had two elements about this. One, that drunkenness was seen as a despicable action. People were expelled from the synagogue if they were found to be drunk. So in those days, being, being expelled from the synagogue means you were not part of the social circle anymore. 
So now you know that being drunk was not a social activity. It was a bad habit. And people were not accepted when they were drunk. Now the other part of the Jewish tradition is that especially in weddings, and this is why the, the governor, as we learned in the, in the kids' story, said that you saved the best one to the end, for the end, was because to avoid fermentation over a long period of time, like a week-long celebration and drinking all the time, they mix the, the, the oinos, the grape juice, in two parts. 40% juice, 60% water. That was the tradition. Now, so it was unfermented juice. The issue here is not the, the wine. The issue is here that there is a need. Verse 4. Now, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to his, the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this verse is packed with stuff. See, first, when, when, G, when Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, they have no more wine. The response of Jesus to his mother, it's rather rude, isn't it? Woman. I mean, I wouldn't dare talk to my mom. Woman. Not even to my wife. She would slap me around. Woman. But see, the word there is the word gunai. You don't, you don't have to remember it. But it is the same use, the same word that is used when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he speaks to Mary and John. When he says, this is your mother, this is your son. It is the same word that, that, that uh, um, it is used to, to refer to, to women in authority like queens. In fact, um, Homer in the, in the Odyssey, he uses that to refer to Helen. Remember high school liter literature? Um, so, so what happens is, is that this word is a word actually of respect, not, not, not of, uh, uh, of disrespect. It's in fact Jesus saying, uh, okay. However, the whole phrase... Is Jesus basically saying, um, you haven't really understood what this is about. Jesus is about to do something that nobody has seen before. Mary didn't understand yet what Jesus was about to do. Mary is thinking on the wine and the tradition. Jesus is thinking on the lesson that is about to be taught. Because see, Jesus, like we said at the beginning, is trying to tell his disciples that to be one of the true disciples, they need to be ready to be available when needed. Now Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He responds to Mary. The hour. The time. Jesus uses this reference to tell Mary one thing. I'm not under your authority. I'm under the authority of God. Jesus does not operate on this text under the authority of Mary. In fact, Jesus never operates under the authority of Mary. Second, he says, I operate under the authority of God. And yes, I will provide because I am the provision. Not the provision only for the people in this wedding. I'm the provision for the whole world. Now, Mary understands 
Because see, if we would take literal, literal the, this expression, woman, you don't get it, Mary would have said, okay, well, I tried. But no, he, he turns to the people and he says, do whatever he tells you. Now, this phrase, family, do whatever Jesus tells you, still stands today. Do whatever he tells you. So if you haven't seen it yet, this story is not about the wine. It's about what Jesus is teaching. Part of the hardest things that I've had to do as, as a pastor is when the phone rings in the middle of the night. A few years back, uh, I was pastoring another church. And, and, and my phone rang. It was 3 in the morning on a Sunday morning. And uh, it had been a long Sabbath. We had been at church until 10 or 11. I had just gotten a couple hours of sleep. And my phone rang. I know that when my phone rings in the middle of the night, I got to get ready. And that phone rang. And, and uh, it was a couple from our church that... Uh, on that day, they were going to celebrate the birthday of their boy. He was about the same age as Gianni. They, I think they, were, they are the same age. He's also a freshman in college now. And, uh, and they were going to celebrate the birthday. The father uh, uh, of, of our sister, their church, he was a pastor in Central California. And they were coming down Saturday night for the celebration. And the brother was driving the car. And as he was driving the car, he fell asleep on the five by the grapevine. And um, the car rolled over. His wife in the car too. It was, it was him, his wife. It was his, the father, the pastor, and, uh, and his wife. And uh, the wife was expecting a child. Uh, so when I get the call, uh, the mother was at UCLA hospital. The father has pa had passed away in the accident. The mother... Uh, was at the UCLA hospital, and the son and his wife were in Santa Clarita in some hospital over there. The ambulances that went, went from different places, and they took them to different hospitals. So the couple were with the mother, and they asked me to see if I could find out about the, the son, the, the brother. So early in the morning Sunday, trying to figure out where the son was. Uh, we, find, we found them, we, we gathered all the information, and during that week, whole week, they're trying to figure out the funeral arrangements for the dad who had passed away while they're visiting in two different hospitals. When the funeral arrangement was completed, family members from other parts of the country and other countries were coming for the funeral. I was helping them going to the airport and picking up family members to bring them to their home. And one of those driving from one place to another, I'm stopped at a, at a light and a guy who was driving behind me didn't see that we all stopped. And he hit my car from behind. So now my car was totaled. And uh, he hit the corner of the frame and the insurance company decided we're not going to fix it. So now I'm driving a rental car going from place to place.
one of the worst things that could happen when you're serving is that something bad happens to you. Jesus knew that when he, come, when he came to serve, bad things were going to happen to him. He knew what was going to be the end. He knew when and how he was going to die. He told his disciples ahead of time, it is necessary for the Son of Man to be arrested and then crucified. He knew it. But that, those events did not prevent him from doing what he came to do. Those events did not prevent Jesus from doing what needed to be done when it needed to be done. So what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples now is, guys, you need to be ready to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. Because, see, the purpose of serving, the purpose of serving family, is it is not about recognition. It's about being useful. Verse 6. Now there were six stone uh, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, there is a reason why it says here that there were stone jars. Because there were two kinds of water jars at the homes. One was the clay, the clay jars. And the clay jars were used for the daily use. That is the kind of uh, a jar that the woman took, the Samaritan woman took to the well. A jar, uh, a clay jar. But the, there is a distinction here. It says that there were stone um, jars. And stone jars here also says that they were part of the purification process. Every house had at least one. Because when it was time to celebrate the feast and when a, a rabbi was visiting the home, they performed the washing of the hands and the washing of the feet as it was in the tradition, in the Jewish tradition. So they had to be ready with those big water jugs. Now, it says here that they were for 20 or 30 gallons. Now, let me show you a picture of what one of these gallons look, I mean, jacks, jacks, jars looks like. This jar, and, and you see the lady on the back for reference. Can you see her? So this jar is about four feet tall. This is actually, when you go to Cana, and, and some of you be able to go next year. Uh, when you go to Cana, there is a chapel. A chapel where everybody goes there and wants to get remarried or married. Because it's Cana, the wedding town, right? But underneath, archaeologists excavated underneath that chapel. And they discover one of these uh, jars. They're actually huge stones. And they're carved inside. And that's where they place the water for the purification. Now, you can see it now that these were not jars that people carried to the well. Water needed to be brought to fill these jars up. Now, there were how many? Six. Six. Now, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water up to where? Up to the rim. Don't leave one single space. Now, there's a principle there, family. When Jesus asks us to do something, when we're doing something for God, we can't leave it halfway done. We have to do it all the way. 
We can't be content on doing a job that is almost done. You know, uh, uh, I'll take advantage of my children right now because they're not here. They're singing in another church. Um, but see, every morning, every morning when they get up for school, I said, make your beds. And we have two left now. The other one is in college, so I don't know if he makes his bed. I really don't care. But, uh, but uh, uh, one of them, I won't tell you which one, makes his bed perfect. Perfect. I mean, you can bounce a qu quarter off of it. Perfect. But the other one, he gets up and he just grabs the blanket, the cover, and just rolls it up. You can see the corner of the sheet coming out, you know, the PJs hanging a leg underneath. But he made his bed. See, when we do stuff for Jesus, we can't do it halfway. Because if we don't do it halfway, the miracle, what he's ready to bless us with, is not going to be the whole way. Let's look at the story. And he said to them, verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast or the governor, according to the version that you're reading. Now, Jesus didn't take, take the jars. That would have been impressive. Just grab some. Maybe, maybe take a cup and, and, and take some to the master. See, uh, something happened to me when I was a kid. Uh, my family from my grandmother's side, they own uh, uh, a ranch, pieces of land, huge. And they grow this cacti that is called maguey. And in this type of cacti, what they do is that they carve the center of it. They carve it. And you know, cacti have an ability. You know what it is, right? What do they collect? Water. So what they do is that they carve in the center of it and they place a huge rock on top of it. So in the morning when you go and see these cacti, you see that there's water collected. This water is called aguamiel, honey water, because it is so sweet. So in the morning we would go to the, to the, to the fields where these rows, huge rows of cacti were there. And, and, and one of the guys would lift the rock and with one, one mug, he would just dip it in that water and he would give us the taste. And my goodness, I tell you, I've never tasted anything so good, refreshing and sweet as that thing. Now the problem with that is that if you leave it in barrels for a long time, it turns into pulque. And that's uh, the poor man's version of tequila. So Jesus is saying, just dip it and take it. Take it to the master. Now, you can't see these guys that they knew what the jars had. Remember? What did the jars have? Water. So now they dip it. They probably can't see inside. They just put the jar, I mean the, the, the mug inside the jar, and they scoop it out, and they take it. I don't know if it happened there. I don't know if it happened when the master drank it. I don't know when it happened. But 
the, what happened was that when the master drinks it, now it's no longer water. It's oinos. So they took it. Now, one of the beautiful things about this family is that, you know, we oftentimes believe that Jesus is not interested in the mundane things that occur in our lives. Oftentimes we believe that, that, that Jesus doesn't really care about the, the things that are common and, 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 and normal in our lives. But see, God is so interested in each one of us that he cares even for the simple things in our lives. Even more than we do sometimes. Otherwise, he wouldn't have care about the wine. Not even at the wedding. Now, Jesus did it. Not because he wanted to be recognized. But because he wanted that in this place, there would be a blessing. And you see, what we need to remember is that when we serve Jesus, when we do something for God, the reward is not about people knowing that I did it. It's about that when I do it for God, the blessing is for everyone. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now it became wine. So apparently it happened when the, when the mug touches lips, now the water turns into wine. Is that what you read? And they did not know where he came from. Now, you can see it here that he did, nobody said, well, you know, Jesus made us do this. See, he, did, he didn't say that. Nobody knew, he didn't know where this came from. You see, now, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept, you have kept the good wine until now. So now this wine is not 60% water. Now this wine, it's 100% juice. Because see, when Jesus does something... He does it 100%. So now what happens here is that the people receive the blessing. Jesus shared the blessing. The servants shared the blessing. And everybody received it. Now, if you ask me, this is pretty impressive. Not the wine. That's not the impressive part. The impressive part is what Jesus did. Let me explain. When we do our part, Jesus does his. When we do it for him, every, everyone gets the blessing. But when I do it for me, the blessing stops right there. So see, now, verse 11, look what it says. This is the first sign. This is the first Sign. The Gospel of John is divided in two parts. Who Jesus is and the signs that point that he is what was said that he was. The Gospel of John never mentions that Jesus performed miracles. John always says, a sign. This was a sign that he is 
who he is. The, the new disciples, they're following Jesus. And now there is a reason these disciples are with him. And this is quite interesting to me. In the, in the Jewish education system, there was a process. See, schooling was very different than we have it today. Today we have pre-K or whatever it's called now. Whatever. Uh, kindergarten. And then you have one through six, and then you have seven through eight, or six through eight, depends on the school. And then you have high school and then college. See, in those days, education was a little bit different. From birth until seven years of age, children learn from their mothers. And what they learned, what they learned was the Torah, the five first books of the Bible. They had to memorize them. When they turned seven, a rabbi would come to the village and quiz these children on the Torah. He would ask questions. And those who were bright, those who knew the Torah well, then this rabbi would say, okay, you can, you can come with me. And he would take a group of children to learn under him. Those who were not that bright, not well versed on the Torah, they would stay at home to learn the trade of their father. Now, when they turned 12, those children who grew with the rabbi would be taken to the temple. And at the temple, they would be quizzed, not by one rabbi, but by the college of rabbis. And these children would answer questions and give their ideas on what whatever the scripture they were asked spoke of. You remember that Jesus one day was lost. At least, well, her parents, his parents were. He was at the temple and he was discussing with the rabbis about the scripture. And they were asking one question. Who taught him? This guy is so bright. Who is the rabbi that taught him? And they were like, oh, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Because he didn't learn from any of them when he was 12. Now, at the age of 17, those who were bright and passed the test... At 12, they would follow one rabbi, only one. And this rabbi had one student. And from 12 to 17, this student will grow to learn from this rabbi. You've heard of Paul, the apostle that he learned at the feet of Gamaliel. He was his rabbi. So what happened is that at the age of 17, if they were bright enough, they would be taken as rabbis in training. But if they weren't, they would go back to the trade of their parents. When Jesus comes to the Sea of Galilee to the shore, there is John and his brother James. And there is Andrew and Peter. And you remember when Jesus came to the shore, the scripture tells us that John and his brother James are fishing with the, in the boat of their father. Remember that story? Jesus says, follow me. And they say, okay. Now, the father is there. He's looking at them. And they're saying, yeah, we're going with you, Jesus. And he's just quietly there like, okay, guys, later. We don't read a single time when this father says, hey, guys, what do you think you're doing? Who is this guy? Where are you going? Not at all. 
The reason is because James, John, Andrew, and Peter were under 17 years of age. And when Jesus comes and tells them to follow me, their father was like, yes, my children would have an education. Yes, go with him. Go. Awesome. The first lesson they learn from Jesus was to be ready when they were needed. Was to learn how to serve when they were required to serve. The lesson from the words of Mary, do whatever Jesus tells you. I think that today those words are still valid. And Jesus has a lot of things that he wants us to do. We are in this world his hands, his feet. We are those who he's called to be his disciples. And the first lesson we need to learn, the reason why we are his disciples, is because he wants us to be ready and available when we need to, when somebody needs us. You know, it is so cool that I get texts and phone calls from people saying, Pastor, do you know that so-and-so is in this need, in this, in this place, in this hospital? See, I'm the pastor, but I'm the last one to know about things that happen in the church. But it's amazing when people call me and text me to tell me about things that are happening in the church. That means that somebody is aware. That means that somebody is ready, and in that way, everybody can help. But sometimes we haven't decided to, to be ready, to be available. And, and perhaps, I understand, you know, uh, maybe you've never done it. Maybe you don't know what to do. Maybe you have did it in the past, but people treated you bad. People were ungrateful. Or maybe you just have fear. But see, Jesus has promised that it's not about the reward. It's not about the result. It's about us be ready when we're needed. 